Hello and welcome to another episode of Father and Joe. I'm Joe Rocky here with Father Boniface Six. And Father, today's going to be one of these episodes where something I thought in my head was just kind of settled and done and we can move on to the next thing, kind of like the 2019 World Series. Yeah, that happened, but now we're on to next year. We don't need to worry about that team anymore. Uh, in my mind, the concept of philosophy was kind of the same way. You know, there was Aristotle and all the ancient Greeks. They said their things, and basically that was it. But in our last episode, you mentioned two different saints that were doing it, um, one at least overlapping with my lifetime. So it, it, it's still very alive and well. So I'd like to just start with the basics of, of why this is important, what, what philosophy is, and how it really intertwines with us as individuals. Um, you know, there's a lot of things that are out there that people think has nothing to do with me, but if you dig a little, little bit, it really interferes, or not interferes, but it really does interact with your life in a number of ways. And philosophy, the way that you think, most people don't get to that at all. So I'd like to, uh, to let you have the floor here and, and to educate us. Well, yes, uh, philosophy is uh, is alive and well, and uh, philosophy involves things like uh, it's the application of reason to certain questions, and um, really, philosophy is the foundation of the sciences. And um, so, when we get a PhD, that's a Doctor of Philosophy degree. That's the PH part of it. So, I have a PhD in computer science. That's a Doctor of Philosophy degree with a specialization in computer science. And people who have PhDs in mathematics or history or English or a variety of other things, those are all doctor of philosophy degrees because underlying all of these different fields is uh, philosophy. And philosophy has a number of different... Uh... <clears throat> oh, you froze up for a second. Oh, sorry. <laughs> um, philosophy has a number of different... Uh, fields to it, and and it involves questions. Uh, natural philosophy would be connected with questions that have developed in biology or physics or uh, or chemistry, and um, you know, it's uh, we have certain scientific approaches to answering questions like what is everything made of. Uh, well, you know, you can like split atoms and talk about all of these sorts of things, but but what 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 is all of that? What is that? What is that made of? What is matter? What does that even mean? And and how do we, you know, we have a sense of what a desk is or a table, um, but we could also just describe that as a bunch of atoms. When at what point does a bunch of atoms become a table? Um, and then you know, uh, so how do we define a table? And is there a thing that's like tableness? Uh, that is there a set of all tables from which we can abstract uh, the tableness? And, and what does that mean? Well, you can kind of use a thing as a table. There's a thing that's intended to be a table. There's, you know, so anyway, this, this seems like, well, why do, why do we care? Well, um, so we, we name things, we categorize things, things have a a kind of nature, they have qualities to them. But more interesting questions are like, what's a human being? At what point do you, what does a human being consist of? And 
well, why is a human being different than an animal? And um, what, what does it mean to be a human being? These are actually pressing questions in our world today. Uh, well, that whole thing of what is a woman? Mm-hmm. Well, it's a philosophical question. It's people doing philosophy. And for example, we say, well, there's uh, something different about human beings than animals. Like human beings have this thing about them, a soul, let's call it. Well, wh- where is the soul? Point to that. Well, you can't exactly point to it, but it's something that makes us different. Well, what's the relationship between the soul and the body? Uh, does the body matter? You know, this is the whole question with gender theory. Like, if you have a body with, with male genitalia, does that make you a man? Well, somehow you can, you know, feel like a woman, but be in a man's body. Are we in a body or do we have a body or are we a body? Well, these are philosophical questions and, and uh, a philosophy that ties things together uh, and describes the world accurately is, is what we call truth. Truth is the mind's correspondence to reality. And so we develop a philosophy to uh, be able to explain truth or to discern truth. Well, is there absolute truth or is your truth your truth and my truth is my truth? Well, these are, again, these are philosophical questions. So uh, approaching these questions is uh, something that human beings have been doing since we had the capacity to think and uh, is something that's still going on today. I mentioned in our previous episode the the philosophical school of phenomenology, and I think I can explain quickly um, how some of that is valuable for us. Uh, when we have uh, Plato or Aristotle, those are the ancient Greek guys that you mentioned, um, we have a philosophical system which is kind of defined from the outside. We have objective reality and we say, um, a human being is, uh, whatever, an embodied soul and, uh, is able to think with a level of self-reflection. So a human being knows that he exists and can think about his own existence, for example, and is capable of philosophizing. And, uh, but then, so that's a sort of objective external approach to things, the set of all human beings. But then Descartes asked the question, explored the question, which became more problematic. Well, I I don't experience all human beings. I only experience myself. Uh, I know that I exist. How do I know that anything else exists? And this is the kind of thing that a movie like The Matrix explores. Well, it seems like there's a whole world around you, but how do you prove it's not all a figment of your imagination? How do you know it's not just like, something stimulating your brain and making you think that there's a whole world around you, that you're actually tasting and seeing and feeling things when in fact, it's all an illusion. How do you know that? How can you prove that? Well, that turns out to be a really hard <laughs> question to answer. Uh, and and Descartes said, well, how, how would I build this up from basic principles? Well, I know that I exist. How do I know that I exist? Well, because I can think the very fact that I'm asking this question means that I exist. And he said, I think, therefore I am. Cogito ergo sum in Latin. So now he created this problem of like, well, existence is only building on thought. And how do I get from thought to the outside world? How do I get outside of myself at this point? 
And so that becomes a challenging question to, to overcome. So we have this description of the objective world, philosophies like Platonic or Aristotelian philosophies. And then we have these kind of subjective or existentialist philosophies like Descartes, who starts with inner experience, personal experience, starts from the inside, the subject, uh, and, and tries to then reach the outside. Phenomenology was a, a, a blending of these two philosophies, which re reflected on the phenomenon, what happens when the outside world is experienced inside the person. So I do really experience the outside world, and I experience the phenomenon of that inside myself. There's a way that I take the outside world inside of myself, and I experience that. I experience that in my imagination. I experience that in my emotions, my feelings. I experience that inside of myself. And that's really uh, a phenomenon. So that process of phenomenology, what does the experience of the outside world, what is the experience of the outside world like? And describing that is uh, kind of brings together the subjective and the objective in this phenomenological approach to philosophy. So that's a, a long answer to say that uh, on the one hand, you're very right. Some of these things have been resolved a long time ago. Uh, and you know the idea that the world exists and that we experience it, that we can think, but kind of these questions of how do I know things? How do I come to believe things? What are these processes like? Uh, these are you know, all kinds of ongoing questions and, and creating models around which we can understand all this is the, is the work of philosophy, which, as I said, is foundational for everything else, sociology and science and uh, uh, psychology. And, and ultimately, it also provides a foundation for theology, for the, uh, the reflection uh, or the, uh, the science of God, the knowing of God. So, uh, Anyway, uh, those are a, it's a little primer in philosophy for you. Well, I appreciate that. Um, it, 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 it gets me to a, a thought that I was having is that science is by its nature tested by other scientists essentially doing the same test and coming to the same results. You know, I can throw something out my window. You can throw something out your window. It's going to drop at the same rate, the rate of gravity. Um, and that's just a, an example there. And one of the things that hit me and is that it is virtually impossible to replicate someone else's lie. You can replicate the truth over and over again. You know, if, if I, we turn water to a certain temperature, it will be steam. Like that's just what will happen. But if I lie about something and someone just hears the results for them to replicate it, can be very challenging. I guess that's part of the definition of truth is, is the repeatableness of it. And one of my questions there that, that come into play are how do we look at these other thought? They're not these other ideas, I guess that they get presented to us that we don't agree with but we don't know why we don't agree with them. I mean, that's kind of what, what modern politics is, is, you know, we, we have this discussion saying that, well, 
if everyone had a gun, would society be more calm because everyone would be able to defend themselves immediately? Or would it be because everyone had a gun, people would want to use it because everyone has a gun? So like, that's a, a case study that we're not going to do, but if we did, how would it, how would it work out? And my question with this, and what I was trying to get to, and I might've done it in a very clumsy way, is that those that speak the truth, we all kind of instinctually know it because we can test it. But when we hear these theories that are wrong and just wrong, um, how do we have the system of phasing it out? Because obviously there was a lot of people that lived between Plato and Descartes. And then there's a lot of people that lived between Descartes and Pope John Paul II. Um, and there had to be some bad ideas that happened about how we should think about thinking and philosophy in general. So I, I want to start as kind of the, the process question of how do we flush out the ideas that are wrong? And conversely, how do we popularize, or I don't know what the right way of saying it, but cement within ourselves that which is true? This is the age-old question, uh, as, as old as human beings, uh, really. <laughs> uh, if you could do all of this, then uh, we'd have no problems in the world and uh, everything would be fine. But there's a, there's a way that we keep, uh, you know, on the, on the one hand, we keep going uh, deeper into things. On the other hand, we keep repeating lies. I, I don't agree with you in terms of uh, lies not being replicatable. We're replicating lies all the time. Most heresies are reinventions of older heresies. Most lies are reinventions of older lies. We come to them perhaps through a different, from a different angle, uh, a different set of circumstances, but you know the, the same kinds of distortions take place. I was mentioning things about gender theory. So the, the idea that the body is like a vehicle, like a container in which the soul or the person resides is an ancient problem. It's really a platonic problem. Plato had this idea that the body is the prison of the soul, that the soul existed, pre-existed in the world of forms and uh, led astray by the passions, the soul collapsed into an earthly body. And through philosophy, the soul is freed from the body in order to return to the world of forms, uh, ultimately definitively by death. And so that's a problem. Uh, we would not agree with that in Christianity. Rather, the person is a body and soul, an animated body or an embodied soul. And we, we live out of our body. It's not that we have a body. It's that we are a body. And we don't exist without a body. And so even in heaven, we speak of a glorified body. Our body is always part of who we are. But those are philosophical ideas that you can't sort of prove definitively once and for all. You know, it's kind of a proposal like the, and the philosopher, I probably should have started with this. I mean, the idea with the philosopher is that he is the one who learns how to live the good life because he uh, develops a love of wisdom and wisdom is that kind of insight that helps us to live fully. And so Christ was the ultimate philosopher that is to say, he's the one who ultimately lived the good life and teaches us to do so. He is, in fact, embodied wisdom. He is embodied divinity. 
And so he is the fullness of truth. In fact, the way, the truth, and the life. And so uh, Christianity has always, uh, Christian doctrine, revealed doctrine has always held philosophy. And, and so we draw elements from Platonic philosophy, but we also reject parts of Platonic philosophy because they're wrong, like the a soul being Im- imprisoned in the body. But it's that same idea that's resurfacing in a lot of gender theory. The idea that the soul is imprisoned, you know, a male soul is imprisoned in a female body is the basic idea. And, uh, or just the idea that I can define myself. Uh, I don't want to be a man anymore. I'm going to decide to be a woman. And so uh, I'm going to do something to my body to make that happen. And that's going to somehow force me in a direction. And I hope I'm saying all these things. There's no way you can say these things and not set off people's landmines. But I'm not making any judgments about any of this. I'm just observing it right now. I have judgments I could make. But anyway, just to observe the, the philosophical problem or the philosophical claim, I should say, I'm calling it a problem. Christianity calls it a problem, but other people would call it a claim that uh, you have a, a male soul in a female body or a female soul in a male body. Of course, that presumes that there is such a thing as female and male, which then also becomes part of the, the conflict. People that are uh, two-spirited or are you know a whole variety of genders. And that, I think that's closer to the point that you were making about the lie not being repeatable. One thing that happens is when things go off, they tend to split. It's sort of like there isn't one Protestant religion. There are 20,000 Protestant denominations. As soon as you start to split, you never stop splitting. And it's sort of like there aren't two genders uh, in gender theory. There are, And there aren't three or four or 10 or 12. There are 60 or 70 and a growing number. Uh, because as soon as you start to get off, things tend to split. Whereas the truth has a way of resonating and, and landing, finding a fixed point, a stable point that makes sense. Uh, if you don't have two, then you have an endless number. Uh, mm. But if you have two, then it, it fits. Everything fits. Uh, so um, I was, oh, so how do, we, how do we avoid, how do we get the right answers? And then how mm-hmm. do we share them with everyone else? I mean, mm-hmm. that's the project of evangelization. And ultimately, it comes down to a matter of faith. We, uh, it's Christ who clarifies philosophy because the mind darkened by sin will always get things wrong. And that's why we need the revelation that we receive through faith. But faith is ultimately an act of trust that can't be proven or disproven. And uh, it can only be accepted. And, uh, you know, that's the work of John Henry Newman, among others, who really studied the process of conversion and belief how we come to an ascent of faith, uh, which is not obvious. It's not a syllogism. It's not like I can set out a logical proof and then you have to believe. There's a whole confluence of factors. There's a collection of evidence that brings us to a point, and it's different for every person, that we're willing to say, I believe. And so that's not so simple. But all Mm -hmm. of that preserves freedom, and the preservation of freedom preserves love. Because if there's no freedom, there's no love. And so these are the kinds of things that um, you know, are, make it interesting. We, we don't just prove to people once and for all, all the right answers, and then everybody has to come to believe. We develop relationships, and then we grow together, and we come to a knowledge of truth 
um, which has been revealed to us by God, but which we also have to flesh out in the particular details of our own life and circumstances and relationships. And so there's something that's completed, uh, but there's also something that's in progress. And that's the way that we live our lives. We are the, the, the man along the way, the homo viator, who is uh, making his pilgrim way towards the, towards the completion. And we're not doing it alone, but we're doing it together. And to go off with a real example, or uh, at least an observation that I have in my life about how things can keep splintering, as you said, once you go down that path of something that's wrong, um, as you guys know, I I have an infant child who's less than a year old, and if he is told he's not allowed to do something, it's now the thing he wants to do more than anything else on this planet. And that's true with with many people who outgrow that, especially the ones that want to become economically successful in America. But there's a lot of people that don't want to outgrow that. They just want to be told, I'm not allowed to do that, so that's all I want to do more and more. And they, they actually get the joy from turning around and trying to touch the thing that mom has taken away from me six times and seeing her run over. That gives him like the biggest smile on his face. And likewise, if she's not around, he goes and does that to me. I don't make a big deal about it. He goes, oh, well, this game's not fun anymore. I'm going to go do something else. And um, it, it, it brings it to me that I think that this is people playing with society in the same thing. Like you people who are my grandparents and my parents, you guys only wanted two and you're mad at me because I'm making three and four. Well, I'm just going to keep going and make you more mad because I'm getting more attention for it. And really in a lot of ways, it looks like it is a deficit of relationships um, that that's just a calling out for, for a childish need for attention. And that's really what building real sustainable relationships are, is creating that balance and expectations of how much attention we we deserve and ought to give to others. You know, I have relationships in my life where I see you father basically once a week on average. Um, And I have relationships like obviously with my wife where I see her every day. And, you know, we've, I don't expect to see you as often as I see Teresa. It's not like, Hey, I got mad at you because, because we don't see each other as often or, or you never get mad at me for Joe saying, you don't know what you should know in this episode. I spend all my time correcting you. Um, and it's just part of what we do. And I think that as we look more and more that balancing of relationships kind of is society's guardrails for all this stuff. You know, and telling people they're not essential and locking them in their rooms for two years. I think this is just the beginning of what's going to happen from the way various governors chose to deal with COVID. And, you know, it's it's not a good thing to to be isolated from other people. And that's going to to last week's episode, amazing about, about the orders that intentionally choose to do that. But on the other hand, I think I also answered the same question. It's a group of, of nuns together being cloistered. It, it's not an individual sitting by themselves who's trying to change the rest of the world. Um, as you gave the beautiful analogy in our last episode, that, that they're trying to live in the heart of Jesus within the Christ in, in a life of prayer, right in the middle of the body of the church. And in that notion, I think that that, this is how we get to the, the church being the, the solution. It, it's always welcoming 
for new people based upon your talents and pushing you to become better at said talents. So are you someone who is able to think these things through so we can go, this is why it's a good idea or not and, and articulate it? Well, thankfully for all of us, we already have the answer given to us. We just need to figure out what Jesus told us and how it's applicable to this situation. Um, you know, obviously plastic surgery and all the other things that go into, into this problem we're discussing now did not exist um, 2,000 years ago. But the teachings of Christ um, still are. So hopefully, Father, I didn't go off direction from, from where, where you were talking about there. And I want to give you a chance to, to conclude today's episode. Well, just to come back to your uh, your initial launching off point in terms of philosophy, you know we uh, we, we need to keep thinking, and uh, and that love of wisdom that comes through observing the world, living in our flesh, and uh, and thinking about things is uh, is really important. Not everybody is equally capable of philosophy. Everybody actually has a philosophy, including your your infant. Uh, he's got a certain approach to how things work and uh, how to live the good life. He has principles that he lives by and uh, is is developing a philosophy that he may or may never uh, articulate, but uh, it's there. So we all have a philosophy. Um, we can benefit from the philosophy of others, and that's uh, where the exchange of ideas is so valuable. Uh, but the good news is also, you know, I'm never going to be able to fully describe all of the things that take place in uh, epistemology and in, in, uh, in knowing what it takes to know something, you know, for example, or what it takes to uh, make an ascent of faith, like John Henry Newman spent his whole life being able to unpack this problem and describe what are the uh, operating principles. Uh, I'm not going to get there, but one of the beautiful things is that uh, faith gives us in uh, very quickly what philosophy takes a long time to discover. And mm. so investing ourselves in our faith, uh, which tells us, for example, that we are not a soul in a body, but we are an embodied soul. Uh, that our body is is uh, intimately connected to our soul. The soul is the form of the body. Um, those kinds of things are uh, given to us in a way we don't have to figure it out. And that's where our faith really benefits us. And we come to receive all that, like you said very beautifully, through our relationships, through the community we live in. So we should choose well, live with people who can reinforce the good life, the philosophy that will really help us to to thrive in this world. And that's the long scientific answer when our parents said, choose your friends wisely, um, how to apply it. So we, we thank everyone for being out there and listening with us here today. Please continue to share and subscribe. Those star ratings make a big difference. So if you haven't done it yet, please click and do so. And if you can leave a, a written review, all the more helpful. So thank everyone for being out there and we will be with you again here next week.